In the past 10 years or so, several movies have been released which have popularized the story of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot is one of the well-known or more well-known missionaries of the 20th century, although he only served for a few years. After college, he set his sights on the native tribes of Ecuador, specifically the Quechua people. But even further deep in the jungle was the Harani Indians, a totally unreached tribe. Nobody wanted to reach them, though, because they were known for being brutal and, and violent towards outsiders. Their name, given by the locals, means savages. In 1952, Elliot arrived in Ecuador. He spent time evangelizing the Quechua Indians who had been reached. A girl he was fond of in college, Elizabeth, soon joined him in Ecuador. He put off marriage because he was intent on getting to the mission field, but she was intent on joining him. And so in 1953, they were married and had their first child in Ecuador in 1955, little girl. But shortly after this, Jim and his ministry partners decided it was time to reach those Huarani Indians. They made first contact with the Indians through by airplane with a loudspeaker. And they eventually built a base a short distance from their village on the river. And one day they were approached by a small group of the villagers. And they were friendly. They even gave one of the villagers a ride in the airplane. Probably blew his mind. But after this first contact, they intended to visit the village itself. But unbeknownst to them, the tribesmen who had visited When they returned, they had lied about their intentions, and their plans were cut short. A few days later, unannounced, a a group of ten Warani warriors showed up and speared Elliot and his four companions. And they all were killed, and their bodies were found downstream. A lot of people would say that this young man wasted his life. He left behind a wife and a one-year-old daughter, and people would say, for what? what? What good? Many, if not most, in the world would say this is a fool's errand. But Elliot's journal revealed that he knew what he was getting into. He knew in the world's eyes he was wasting his life, throwing it away, but he had no regrets. His life was given over to serving the Lord Jesus and spreading his gospel, and come what may, he was prepared for that. Most people would say that's just foolishness. Men like Elliot are fools. But Elliot would disagree. He's known famously for writing this line in his journal, where he said, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Elliot expressed in his journal that work dedicated to Jesus is more important than life itself. And to this he referenced Luke chapter 9, verse 24, where Jesus says, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will find it. In this powerful yet paradoxical verse just so happens to be paralleled in our passage today in Mark chapter 8. So with that in mind, grab your Bibles, maybe in the pew in front of you, and open them to Mark chapter 8. The passage we have for us today signals the end of the first half of Mark's gospel. It's a real high point. Everything we've studied, this is the halfway through Mark, everything so far has led up to this point. And everything after flows from this point. This is, this is really a peak in Mark's gospel. Jesus is right now beginning his final trek to the cross. And for the first time ever, he tells his disciples about it, about what's going to happen. And to say that they were shocked is an understatement. They did not see this coming. They've been with Jesus for a couple of years. They've seen his teaching, his works. And they finally come to terms with his identity. Despite what the world says, the twelve, they now believe with confidence that Jesus is hes the Christ. He's the Son of God. He is the Messiah. They, they confess it right here in Mark chapter 8. But you have to realize that for the disciples and all the Jews, that meant something else. They had a warped view of the Messiah. They believed the Messiah would come as a conquering king with a sword in hand. He would lay waste to the nations. He would deliver Israel, set up an everlasting kingdom. And so when the disciples confess Jesus as Messiah, they're expecting that. That's going to come, and they're going to be on top. But although Jesus will one day come as a conquering king, it's not quite the order of plans, or rather order of events in God's plan. Jesus drops the bombshell on them that although he will one day return, he first must suffer and be rejected and then be killed. 
before rising again. As we say last week, that was for them brand new revelation. And it, it just shocked them. They, they had no way to process that. It didn't make sense. A suffering and dead Messiah makes no sense. But this was his true mission. He first came to redeem and the cost was his own life. If there was going to be anyone in that future kingdom, their, their sin had to be paid for and he came to do that. So the disciples, they needed to understand that for the Messiah, the cross comes before the crown. And suffering is the pathway to glory. But there's one more twist to go. The disciples, they've been set straight on the true identity of Jesus and the true mission of Jesus, and so have we. But finally, they need to be set straight on the true way of Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he came to do. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for people who seek to follow him on his way? Well, today we're going to find out in the last passage of Mark chapter 8. And needless to say, the disciples were equally shocked by what Jesus drops on them. In short, they learned that not only is the Messiah going to suffer, be rejected, and killed, but so will they. The way of Jesus, the price of being his disciple, is their very lives. And the same is true for all disciples. Following Jesus into glory costs you your life. And you too must encounter the cross before the crown. What makes this passage so significant is that we hear from Jesus himself a clear call to salvation and discipleship. He lays down what it takes to follow him. There's no sugarcoating it. It's very stunning, harsh, but straightforward. He lets you know this is the cost. You want to follow me? Here's the cost. This is the way to eternal life. It's the only way. It's the narrow way. But hear it from Jesus himself. Forget what the culture says. Forget what that TV preacher says. You want to hear it from Jesus. What, what does it take to follow him? What does it mean to follow him? What does it cost to follow him? And, and he's going to tell us here in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. So the last passage in Mark chapter 8, and then this critical section from verse 27 through the end. So let's read now, read together this passage for our time today. Mark chapter 8. And join me starting in verse 34. Speaking of Jesus, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The words are simple, that doesn't make it easy. But to help, I'll give you a simple outline. Jesus proclaims the call to discipleship, the cost of discipleship, and the case for discipleship in this little passage. The call to discipleship, the, the cost of discipleship, the case for discipleship. And we'll begin with, number one, the call of discipleship. And just looking at that first half of verse 34, he summoned the crowd with his disciples to himself, and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me. Stop there. There's already a change that's taken place, if you noticed. Before this, as we left off, Jesus was alone with his 12 disciples. He was teaching them, telling them about his true identity, his true mission. But before he gives them this last bit of revelation, telling them about what it means to follow him, he chooses to summon a crowd. That's very interesting. We don't know anything about this crowd. We don't know who they were, how many they were. We know that he's in the villages surrounding Caesarea Philippi. It would not have been hard for him to summon a crowd. But it's a significant little detail that's thrown in here. 
Put yourself in the shoes of, of an early Christian in the city of Rome. Because that was Mark's original audience for this gospel. And everyone already knew that the 12 disciples who had become the 12 apostles, they were a special group. They had a special relationship with Jesus. And a lot of what Jesus says in this gospel, it's, it's, just, it's kind of just for them. And so it begs a fair question. Jesus, he gives this essential call to discipleship. And so we wonder, is this just for the 12? Is this just for them? What he says is just for the special, the 12. And the answer is no. And Jesus makes that very clear by calling the crowd to himself. This is for everyone. What he's about to say here in this call to discipleship is not just for the elite Christians, the super spiritual Christians. It's just for every and any Christian, everyone who seeks to follow him. This is your call. And with that in mind, Jesus extends an invitation to everyone present. He starts off saying to the crowd, if anyone wishes to come after me, and so on and so forth. It's like he's placing the ball in your court. You are invited to follow. The only thing seemingly keeping you back is, is your decision. You must decide to follow. Now look, behind the scenes, we know that God must make them alive, draw them to himself. Only then can you respond to the ball that's in your court. And Jesus understood the sovereignty of God more than anyone in salvation. But at the same time, he also knew that God's sovereignty never negates man's responsibility. And so Jesus had no problem making these very open-ended invitations. Like Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John seven thirty-seven, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. God must call you, but from a human perspective, we see the ball in the court, and we're called to respond. That's all we have to worry about. Pick up the ball. You've been invited. This is your call to discipleship. Now, if you've visited many churches, then you've probably heard many invitations. Preachers, especially in the South, they love to end their sermons with these long, drawn-out invitations. You come up to the altar, they come to Jesus moment. And there's nothing wrong with this in itself. It can be a good thing. But in the invitations I've heard, at least, the preacher usually just tells you all the good stuff, tells you all the good promises, but leaves out the cost. It's like, you know, do you want peace and joy and blessing? Then come to Jesus. Do you want eternal life and forgiveness? Then come to Jesus. Or for the TV preachers, do you want your best life now? Do you want health and wealth and prosperity and just a good life? Then come to Jesus. But how often do you hear a preacher follow that up and say, and by the way, you know, there's, some, there's some fine print. Because if you want to come to Jesus, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you everything. Yeah, you get peace and joy and blessing and eternal life. You do. But you also get suffering and persecution. You get a cross, your very own, to carry. Come to Jesus, but pre be prepared to give up your entire life you ever hear that? It makes you wonder. I wonder how many people would walk down the aisle if they heard that at the end of the invitation. But this is what Jesus says. This is his offer. This is his invitation. He gives the call to discipleship, but he surely includes the cost of discipleship. And this brings us to number two, the cost of discipleship. After the call to discipleship, continuing verse 34, the cost of discipleship. We read again, he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. These are classic words, the, the classic call to discipleship, but Jesus throws in the cost that comes with it. And it's so essential that you understand the cost and count the cost before you follow him. First and foremost, he says, you must deny yourself. And this, this first part, it's very misunderstood. So we have to ask, what does it mean to deny yourself? And we start by saying what it's not. He's not talking about self-denial, meaning this is not aestheticism. Aestheticism, it's that worldview 
where you renounce all worldly pleasures and you live a very austere, rugged life of abstinence and neglect. And you just, just think of the Catholic monk or the priest or the nun just neglecting worldly pleasures, self-denial. It's not what he's saying. It's not what the Bible teaches. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says, We are to beware those who forbid marriage and tell you to abstain from certain foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in. We're not under the law. We're under grace. And we are free to enjoy all of the good blessings in life that God has created within his bounds, of course. Not talking about sin, but in his bounds, enjoy everything in life. Ascetics have a twisted view of Scripture and for many a very false view of the Gospel. I would say most of them, they, they live to deny themselves these worldly pleasures and some of them even inflict suffering on themselves because they think it, it's paying for their own sins. It's earning their forgiveness before God which is certainly very false and not what Jesus is talking about. He's not teaching self-denial. He's not telling you to deny something from yourself. He's saying something very different. He's saying deny yourself. And there is a difference. This is all about denying the self. And so now the real question is, what is the self? Biblically, the self is your innermost being. It's your inner person. It's who you are on the inside. But contrary to how good you might think your self is, your self is not good. Your self has been corrupted by sin. Your self exists in rebellion against God. Your self hates God. That's because your self is very selfish. Your self wants everything for its self. Your self wants to be God. All people now, after the fall, in their natural state, seek to serve themselves. They have no concern for God's will, but they seek to live as master of their own domain. And when this self is in control, your sinful desires and and lusts turn into sinful actions. You want something, you lust after it, you take it, even if it harms others. Or you want something, you lust after it, you can't have it, So you harm others who stand in your way. And pretty much every sin can be traced back to someone's selfish interests, seeking to serve themselves. And picture this. Picture Jesus. He's guiding you on this narrow path. He's leading you on the pathway to God. It's a very narrow path. You could fall off, seems like, at any moment. And he's telling you to follow him, but standing in your way, someone's blocking the path can't get through. You can't follow him. And who's blocking the path? Well, it's yourself. It's, it's you. Yourself, that inner part of you, is stopping you from following. And if you're going to follow, you've got to deny self. To deny self means you are disowning your self-will, which is fallen. It's opposed to God. It means you're refusing to be ruled by your own sinful desires any longer. You're placing yourself under God's will. The selfish, self-serving plans you had in life are thrown out the window and you just you want to live according to God's plan, whatever that is. Before you, yourself, sat on the throne of your heart. You acted as if you're the most important person around, as if, Your will is all that matters, as if you're in control. These are just delusions uh, that come after the fall. In reality, God is the most important person around. God's will is all that matters. God is in control. But to realize this, to affirm this, you have to deny self. You have to dethrone yourself from ruling your life, and God is on the throne again. It's only at this point can you truly pray and mean it. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about my will anymore. It's about his will. This denial of self, it's a, it's a definite act, but this is also a continual thing. You do this throughout life. This is a change of attitude. It's a new outlook on life. And that should remain. It should even increase. The more you see God's goodness, the more you see your own sinfulness, the more you want to kill your old self and follow the Lord. This denial of self, it's continual. It's also essential. 
I want you just to really understand why this is essential for salvation, for following. You have to realize that part of your old self's problem is that it doesn't think it has a problem with God. Or if you do have a problem with God, you can appease God through some good works, some self-righteousness. Your self tells you, you know, you can still pretty much live however you want. Just so long as every now and then you appease God, you throw him some good works, maybe you go to church, say a prayer, and then just you can do whatever you want. But this too is a delusion. Your sin problem with God is bigger than you think. You are cut off from God. There's nothing you can do to appease him. There's nothing you can do to earn his favor. You have sinned and fallen short. There's good news though. There's great news is that God, he does offer forgiveness for your sins. He offers redemption and reconciliation, salvation, eternal life. But only those who have come to the end of their selves can find that salvation. Only those who see their sin, they see their self, they're broken, they're humbled by their sin. They realize they don't deserve it, they can't earn it. It's only those people who throw themselves at the feet of Jesus and just cry out for mercy, for forgiveness, for salvation, and are saved. But that's something that your prideful self will never do. Will never do. But when you've had enough of yourself and your sin, and God has humbled you, then you're ready to deny self, push self out of the way, and follow Jesus. And this is the first cost, though. It's an absolute, continual, essential denial of yourself, your very self. But this isn't all when it comes to the cost of following him. First, you must deny yourself. But then second, what does he say? Verse 34, he says, after that, you need to take up your cross. Take up your cross. It's very interesting is that at this point, Jesus, he hasn't said anything about a cross. He just told them for the first time that he's going to die, but he never tells them how he's going to die. In fact, that's, that's a final surprise. They never know until the end that it's crucifixion. So taking up their cross, they're not associating that with his death yet. However, they still knew exactly what he meant when he said, take up your cross. Everyone knew what it meant. It's like saying, take up your electric chair and follow me. They all knew the significance of the cross. The cross, crucifixion, was the center of Rome's terror apparatus. It was designed to deter rebels because it was so such a terrifying way to die. And it worked. In 71 BC, Roman general Crassus defeated the slave rebel Spartacus and he crucified 6,000 of his followers on the road between Rome and Capua. People also knew that when the Romans crucified people, they made you carry your own crossbeam, the, the top half of it, to your own execution. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, they know what he means. You're going to your death. It means that following him comes with suffering and even death. We're not just talking about any suffering, though. And this is another big misunderstanding. Today, a lot of people, they associate bearing your cross with you know, any old hardship you have in life. Maybe you just lost your job, you don't have a lot of money, you're getting older, your back hurts, you have a difficult mother-in-law. And so what do you say? Well, we all have our crosses to bear. That's not what he's talking about. That's not what the cross is at all. The cross does not represent any old hardship or suffering you have in life, even though those might be legitimate suffering. No, but the cross represents shame, reproach, affliction, persecution, rejection, all on account of following Jesus. You get those because you follow him. The world hated Jesus. They persecuted him, ridiculed him. They even killed him. And what do you think they're going to do to you? I mean, just, just do the math. He's saying, look, you're going to follow me now. Here's how they treated me. If you're really following, how do you think they're going to treat you? Taking up your cross means you're suffering in life, whether it's physical or verbal or relational or financial or whatever. You suffer 
on account of him. You're, you act like him as a follower. You talk like him. You believe like him because you're on his way. So he's saying be prepared to be treated like him and to suffer like him. And that this cost right here, this is the real test, the real separator between true and false disciples because everyone likes the good stuff. Who doesn't want eternal life? Who's going to say no to eternal life? Sure, I'll take that. But when you find out the cost, are you willing to stake your life on the claim that he is Lord and Savior? Criminals were forced to carry their cross. Will you take it up willingly? You will willingly invite the shame, the reproach, the persecution, the suffering, just because you follow him. Are you ready to handle that? Jesus isn't saying that if you follow him, you will die. But he's saying that if you follow him, you might, and you need to be prepared. Are you? It's a story, maybe you've heard it before, I maybe have told it before, but nonetheless, one Sunday a man with a gun stormed into a church. He started waving the gun around and saying, I'm going to kill all the Christians here. And if anyone isn't ready to die for their faith in Jesus, you better leave now. And the church was stunned into silence. And a few people quickly ran out the back. A few more left. A few more got up and left. But a lot of people stayed. And so the gunman said, are you sure you're ready to die for Jesus? He then proceeded to sit down, put away his gun, which was fake, and tell the preacher, well, now that the real church is here, you can begin your service. And thankfully, that never happened. But you get the point. Those people who stayed, they were the true disciples. If you're real, he suffered on your account. And even though it's hard, even though we're weak, he gives grace to enable you to suffer on his account. He died on your account for you. And you will die for him. Has this happened to you? Have you suffered in life on account of Jesus? Have you been persecuted, ridiculed, mocked? Like Rod said this morning, we in America for now have it pretty easy for now, but there's still suffering out there, even in our lives. And if it comes your way, I do want you to be reassured. Like those Christians, those early Christians in Rome, when you suffer on account of following Jesus, it's not a sign that God has abandoned you. To the contrary, it's a sign that God has accepted you. There is perhaps no more of a true sign that you are on the way following Jesus than when you suffer for him. Because that's not something fake disciples put up with for long. Suffering because of Jesus, like they're out of there. They don't, they don't want that. They didn't sign up for that. But if you suffer for him, that's a pretty sure test that you are on the right path. And it's a must. Like Jesus said elsewhere, Luke chapter 14, verse 27 he said, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's pretty clear. This is a non-negotiable. It's only after you understand and accept these costs that you are able to truly follow him. And that's the third thing he says. He says, deny yourself, pick up your cross. And then thirdly, he says, follow me. And that part, it's easy to understand. Not necessarily easy to do, but it's pretty simple what he means. He's saying, be like me. Do what I do. Imitate me. Follow me. Obey him. It means he's the Lord of your life now because you've denied self. He's Lord, so you figure out what's his will and then follow it. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Meaning you say you follow him, so you should probably look like him and live like him. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Every person who calls himself a Christian is going to tell you, of course I love Jesus. I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he's my Savior, he's my buddy, I love him. But how do you know if they're being genuine? How do you know if they really love the Lord? Well, do they obey the commands? We're not saved by obeying the commands, but he's our Lord. I'm going to follow the Lord. Do they obey? And we're not talking about sinless perfection here, but what path are they on? 
Do they seek to submit to his will? Do they repent when they fall short? Or are they still pretty much living as if they're on the throne? It's, it's all about their will. Picture a young Christian man, and he desperately wants to marry this girl because she's pretty. They have fun together, but she's not a Christian, not even close. She, in fact, drags him away from the faith and leads him into sin. But she's so pretty. And so in this case, what does the self say? And what does the Lord say? And so what would you do? It's questions like these. It's how you answer questions like these that are are, are more sure indicator of your discipleship status than whether or not you call yourself a Christian. And talk is cheap, but do you deny self and do you follow? And will you take up your cross? Imagine you have a friend at work. She's a faithful Christian lady, super nice, nice to everyone. But you see how the other co-workers treat her. They know she's a Christian. They ridicule her. She's got these old, you know, old-fashioned beliefs. They just ridicule her all the time. They mock her. The boss is even worse. He thinks Christians are brainwashed morons. So you watch as your friend becomes the brunt of all the office jokes. She, she becomes a black sheep in the office, and everyone just mocks her. And then one day she gets fired for underperformance, but you're pretty sure it's because she was a Christian. But now that she's gone, everyone's trying to ask you questions. And they're saying, hey, don't, don't you go to church with her? Aren't you a Christian too? Don't, don't you believe all that stuff? You, you really believe all those things? And you start to feel the heat. You start to see people mocking you behind your back, scoffing at you. And you know, you can make it all go away. You can make it all go away. It's really simple. All you have to do is deny Jesus. Just tell him, I'm not really a Christian. I just go to church every now and then. I grew up that way. It's just not a big deal. I'm not, you know, I'm not that serious. Just make it all go away. They'll stop. In this case, what does the self say? And what does the Lord say? And again, what are you going to do? It's these questions, these circumstances, they show who you really are. True disciples, it's, it's not easy. We're weak in the flesh, but true disciples, in the end, they deny self, follow Jesus while taking up their cross. This is a, a costly discipleship. There's a cost. It's not, it's not easy. God provides the grace, but it's not easy. And that's why at a later time after this, a disciple comes up to Jesus and asks him a question found in Luke 13, verse 23. And he says, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? It's really a peculiar question. Why would he ask that? That's because by that point, it's really later on, everyone's gone. Everyone stopped following Jesus. When Jesus first came on the scene, he was so popular, everyone loved him. He drew crowds of tens of thousands. But now all those people were gone. It's like, why aren't they following? They love the free food, the free healing. That's great. But when they learn that there's a cost, you've got to deny self and suffer and follow. They, they don't want that. They're rather fond of their selves. They want to keep living as captain of their own ship. They're not ready to give up love for self, love for sin in order to follow Jesus. So they're out of there. And that's why the disciple asks, are there just a few like us being saved? Like what's the deal? And Jesus says, yeah, that, there are just a few. And he says in verse 24, the next verse to the disciple, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, seek to enter and will not be able. It makes you wonder, what's, why is it so hard for people to get through this door? Just, just go through the door. But it's, it's a really tiny door. It's a really narrow door. And you know what? Your puffed up self can't fit through the door. You're too big. You've got to leave yourself behind to get through the door. But most people, they don't want to leave their self behind. They, they like living for self. And so even though they get really close to the door, even though they line up right behind the door, they, they love the door, they say, <clears throat> they say, still, they don't make it through. And it's only a matter of time. Jesus continues, he says in verse 25, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us, then he will answer to you and say, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate, we drank in your presence, you taught us in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, 
I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Why are there so few? Because it requires so much denial. You have to deny your entire old self. People don't want to give up love for self, love for sin. A few have been given eyes to see just how destructive sin and self are, and that it's not worth it, and they're ready to part ways. If only more people realize that by serving sin and self, you gain nothing, you lose everything in the end. But, by, but for those who give up everything to follow Jesus, in the end, you gain everything. And this brings us to, lastly, number three, the case for discipleship. He gives the call to discipleship, the cost of discipleship. But he doesn't leave without giving you the case for discipleship. And so far, this sounds crazy. You give up control of your life, all these sinful pleasures. You invite suffering and shame in order just to follow Jesus. Who would do that? Who wants that? What do you get? But if you don't understand the infinite value of following Jesus, then you need a a crash course lesson in God's economics. This is what Jesus tells us in these next verses. He's building the case for discipleship. This is why you should want to follow him and maybe want to think about it. He uses these financial terms, profit, loss, gain, reward. And he overall, he appeals to people's most basic desire. The desire to preserve their life, to live. Everyone wants to live. And he works off of that. But he challenges that with the ultimate paradox. And he says, you know, if you really want to save your life, that's fine. But you just got to lose it. And let's see what he says. Look at verse 35. Resuming Mark chapter 8, verse 35. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's a perfect example of paradox in scripture. It's a statement where on the surface, it doesn't really make sense. But when you realize that he's using the word life in two different senses, you see what he means. He's highlighting a contrast between this life and the next life. Between the outer life and the inner life. The body and the soul which he makes clear in the next verse. How many lives do you have? According to the Bible, you've got two. You've got this life, here now in this body on earth, and you've got the next life, spent in eternity, either heaven or hell. And what you need to know is that God has determined that where you spend your next life is settled in this life. Those who are called and chosen, who deny self, who by faith follow him as Lord and Savior, they will inherit eternal life. And that doesn't just mean it goes on forever, but it's also an infinitely blessed life. Others, though, who live for self, who continue in their rebellion and sin, who deny Jesus as Lord and Savior, they will inherit an eternal death. This is an everlasting death. It's a permanent separation from God place of suffering. And the difference between where you end up hinges on not your first birth, but your second birth. Eternal life is for those, Jesus says, who are born again. And we could even say that if you are born twice, then you will only die once. You escape the second death. But if you're born only once, then you will die twice. To be saved, your old self must die. And then he must be born again. And what does that mean? Like Jesus has taught, it means based on your calling, based on his choosing, based on your faith in him. God makes you spiritually alive. He forgives your debt of sin. He gives you this eternal life, this new life. And it's so much more valuable than this life. And that's a big dividing line. Some people, they try so hard to preserve this life because they think that's all there is. And so they live spending this life on their pleasures, trying to accumulate as much stuff as possible, thinking this is it. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow you die. So live it up. But they fail to realize that their real life starts next, starts tomorrow, the eternal life. 
And so in seeking to preserve this life, being consumed with their self-interest, they lose the next. The door is shut on them before they get inside. But a few others realize that the next life is more valuable, more precious than this life. They've learned God's economics. You invest this life, short, temporary, fleeting life. You invest it in following Jesus and you gain eternal life. That's a pretty good deal. It's, it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, if you could invest $1 in the stock market short term and you, you would get a billion dollar return in a few weeks, would you do it? I mean, it's like a no-brainer. Of course you would do it. The difference is that for some people, they really like that dollar. They really want to hold on to that dollar. It's just too precious for them, and so they live life for right here, right now. And they will end up losing everything in the end. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a parable. Let me read it for you. He said, The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and goods. And now I say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus continues, he says later, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He says it's, it's more than just this life. And then he says, verse 28, You men of little faith, do not seek what you will eat, what you will drink. Do not keep worrying, but seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Live him for the next. He will take care of this life and you gain the next. And look, of course, faith is required here. And that's another huge dividing line. There's faith involved. Knowing, believing, this life is not the end. There is a next life. The next life is more valuable than the first. That takes faith. But this is not a, a blind faith. I urge you to study God's word. Consider the word to base your faith, not on superstition, but on the more sure word. And base your faith on the truth that God has revealed in your heart. You know there's a God. You know he will bring into account. And you know this life is short, fleeting. It's like a vapor like steam rising off of a hot cup of tea. That's your life. It's gone in a flash. And so get to know God's economics. Like Jim Elliott said, he knew it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Look at verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Imagine by some stretch that you invent cold fusion, which means you solve the world's energy crisis. And in so doing, you become the richest person on the planet. We're not talking billions. We're talking trillions and trillions of dollars. You just own like all the money in the world. You own everything. You've got fleets of cars, fleets of planes. You own houses. You own islands. You own countries. You, you got diamond mines. You have it all. Everything you want. It's like you own the whole planet. But then one day, you die in your sleep. And you wake up, and you're standing in front of an angel. And you see something that looks like a kingdom, and you're being kept outside, and you say, hey, what gives? Why can't I get in? And he responds, well, you didn't pay the price of admission. And so you say, oh, just tell me the price. I, I, can, I can meet the price. What is it? I've got cars and planes and islands and diamond mines and... Just you name it. I, I've got pretty much the whole planet. And the angel says, correction, you used to own those things. Now you own nothing. And even at that, the price of admission was a life lived in faith in Jesus. And you don't have that. And so now what can you give in exchange for your soul? You don't have anything. And your soul is lost. And with that, you're carried away forever. Realize your soul is of infinite worth. Nothing is as valuable, but your soul right now is lost, or at least in the past it was lost. You can't redeem it, you can't save it, but God can. 
God sent Jesus to die for you, to redeem you. He purchased you. The price to redeem your soul was paid on the cross. And the question that Jesus presents here is, will you access this divine redemption through faith in him, which is expressed by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him? It's a good deal if you have eyes to see, but it's not going to last forever. Let's finish this off in verse 38. He says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We're actually going to spend a little bit more time on this verse next week, but in short, Jesus, he just finished shocking the disciples by telling them that he's got to die. He's going to suffer, be rejected, and die. But don't worry, because although there's going to be a cross, he's telling them here that there will be a crown. I am coming back, and I will come in power and glory. That part is true. He suffers first to redeem, but he will return in glory. He will come with the angels to save the elect, to deal out retribution to the rest. And certainly there will be no place with Jesus when he comes for those who are ashamed. Some people in this life, they hate the Lord Jesus. They cast shame upon him. Others, they claim to love him, but they are ashamed of him and they similarly cast shame on him. Neither of these will see glory. If you are ashamed of Jesus, you're ashamed to call him Lord. You're ashamed to be identified with him. You're ashamed to call yourself a Christian in a crowd. He says there's no place for you when he returns. Now look, there can be moments of weakness. Even Peter had his moment of weakness. He denied the Lord. He was ashamed. But will you overcome your fear to stand for the Lord? Peter himself did, and in the end, he literally, literally bore his cross for the Lord. He was crucified upside down because of his faith in Jesus. You have to deny the self with this desire for safety and comfort and preservation. And Jesus doesn't mix words. This is a hard sell. This is not a soft sell. This is a hard sell. Jesus lays down the gauntlet of discipleship. Where are the promises in this passage of health and wealth and prosperity, your best life now? Where are the promises? It's not here. He's saying it's your best life next, but not right now. He says be prepared to deny self, suffer, give up this life if you want the next. But there is a great reward. There's an unimaginable reward and glory and eternal life. And it will blow you away. You can't even comprehend. But faith is required. God must open your eyes. You must go to Jesus. You have your invite. The invitation is given to all. So will you answer the call? You know the cost. Count the cost. And then it's up to you in your eyes. I began by telling you about Jim Elliott, the missionary who was killed by the Warani Indians. But his death is not the end of the story. And he most certainly gave up this life for the next, obviously, in a, in a true way. But, but so did his wife. You know the story of his wife. Now, she did not die a martyr's death. But that's not the only way to give up your life for Jesus. His wife, Elizabeth, just put yourself in her shoes. She's widowed. Her husband was just killed by these Indians. You've got a one-year-old daughter. You're living in Ecuador. It's a foreign place. What do you do? You go home to mom and dad and you live a comfortable life in America. It's too much. That's not what she did. She, her daughter, and one of the other widows stayed. They continued to minister to the Quechua Indians. Those are the nicer ones. For a couple more years, they learned the native languages from them. And then after two years, they went to go back and reach the same tribe that killed their husbands. And this time, though, they were accepted because the tribe didn't feel threatened by these two white women and a little girl, three-year-old, so they let them in. And over time, by God's grace, they taught them the Bible, they shared the gospel, and the whole tribe came to confess Christ, including the killers of their husbands who were in that tribe. And they forgave them. Many of them were baptized in the same river where the missionaries were killed a couple years before. 
And one of them, one of the killers named Mincey, even became a preacher and an elder in that little church that formed in that village. He went on to testify later. Like I've said, many documentaries made made about this. But he said before, their tribes are just constant bloodshed, killing one another over and over, no peace. But when these, these people came and brought them the gospel, they finally found peace with the Lord and with one another. Yes, of course, there's more to this story, but, but what's your evaluation? Lives wasted. Jim Elliott wasted his life. Elizabeth wasted her life or not. Yeah, they could have had it nice and easy in America. Did they throw it all away? And look, you may or may not belong in the mission field. That's not the point. But your life, if you follow him, belongs in the same category. Wasted for Jesus. Used up for Jesus. Spent for Jesus. Whatever that looks like for you and me, it's different. But that's the way. In reality, the whole world is the mission's field. So will you be unashamed of him and his gospel? Deny self, take up your cross, and follow him wherever he leads. I pray that you do, and that we here together can follow him. Let's pray. Our God and Redeemer, we we praise you this morning for, as always, the price paid for our redemption. The Lord Jesus, who gave himself up to redeem us, our soul was lost And we cannot redeem ourselves, but he paid the price. And the offer is extended. We don't know your holy will uh, as to who will be saved, but the offer is there and all we have to worry about is is denying self, picking up the cross and following you. And I pray that is our response. I pray everyone here considers their calling, considers their status. We claim to follow, but do we truly follow? Granted, Lord, we are weak still, even those who who have followed you. We fall short. We are sinners. We we are weak and, and struggle. I pray you give us a greater grace and a strength to follow you. And I pray we are motivated to continually see ourself for what it is, to continually deny self, to continually embrace the, the shame that comes from following you, and to continually seek to live according to your will. Be gracious with us, but we want to lift you up. We want to truly follow. And for others, Lord, who may be convicted that they don't follow, that they don't know, I pray you give them eyes to see the next life is there and it's coming and it's precious, but it's fleeting right now. The decision must be now. May they give it up to follow you and accept a more blessed life, though difficult, the joy is greater. We lift these things up to you and we pray that we may be a church characterized by those who truly follow the Lord. Come what may. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.